live from beyond the Beltway, this is Bruce Dumont with our weekly analysis of national politics featuring occasional injections, rumor and innuendo, all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by Democrat lobbyist Dan Johnson, DePaul University economist Mike Miller, Republican businessman Chris Veronis, and in our second hour, Clay Novak, retired lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army, and we'll be talking about his book called Keep Moving, Keep Shouting, uh, Keep Shooting, rather, and uh, we'll also be talking about uh, things that are happening in the world, primarily in Ukraine and Canada and and our our China, uh, as well as Canada. I don't think we've created any problems with Canada recently. I got to check. <laughs> Not there's yet. any balloon that's been shot down over there. But we, we, we'll, we'll talk about that in the second hour. But again, I want to get back to since we have, uh, and it's the first time since I've uh, been back here, and and for a long, long time prior to that, uh, two longtime regular panel members on this show that have been with us probably for over 20 years, and they are still both young men. And uh, it's nice to have them back. They are on opposite sides of the political aisle. I think we'll find out as the program unfolds. <laughs> uh, as sometimes uh, I'm surprised by our guests. They are Dan Johnson, and he is a Democratic lobbyist, and Chris Veronis joins us. He is a public relations expert, owns his own company called ASAP Communications, and they met at the University of Illinois about, what, 30 years ago? At least, maybe. Ish, 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 yeah. The dream of the 90s. <laughs> I want to talk about, uh, I want to start with you, Dan, because you're our Democrat. Yeah. And the question is to you, and you're a young Democrat. You're still a young man. Man, I love this, Bruce. This is uh, fantastic. Even though you've been on the show for 20 years, you were first on for Ralph Nader. It's true. You were a Nader supporter, and that's yes. how we met. Yes. And uh, you've gone from uh, Nader to Bernie Sanders Elizabeth Warren. I, Elizabeth Warren. I don't know whether you ever got to Joe Biden, but you'll probably. Oh, not, oh look, I'm a, I'm a party but, hack now. Now you're a party hack. Oh, man. I so love here's, the machine. Here's my, here's my question to you. Um, are you happy that Joe Biden is, at the moment, the standard bearer of your party? I am. I Why? hope he announces tomorrow. Why? I think he's been hitting it out of the park. Um, you know, the obvious fear, he's 80-something, not mm-hmm. young. Um, but, uh, I tell you, I was struck his state of the union address was amazing. And when he said, I'm not new to this place, I was like, well, that's probably true. I think he got elected before I was born. Yeah. Uh, but he's so good at it. And for me, I just feel like, um, he's as an objective assessment, he's running again. He's winning again. Uh, the nomination, uh, we'll see who the Republicans put but up. But your colleague, your your colleague, the people that you run with in your, in your age group, yeah, um, are they excited? The Democrats, you know, look, uh, yeah, look, I think uh, young people are always fickle, right? We got to earn them every time, uh, which is fair. But I think uh, you know, Uncle Joe, he's been doing great. I mean, what about pe- when you say young people? I'm talking about people of your your age. How old are you? Oh, I'm 48. I'm okay, Gen X. Well, okay, all right, yeah. People who are 48, are they still excited about having an 80-year-old president or 80-year-old plus? Well, look, if Joe Biden were 50 and, you know, had youthful energy and vigor, he could say, like, wow, it feels like a new generation. But if you're 45 or 50, you don't have that experience to lead the entire world when Russia invades Ukraine. I mean, I just think it's not great to be 80, 
But Joe Biden has been an exceptional president. Uh, Chris Veronis, to you, you're about the same age. My question to you is, as a Republican, do you think age is going to be an issue and should it be an issue? And is it an issue for you personally? Well, I, I agree with Dan. Um, I also like that uh, Joe Biden is the standard bearer for the Democratic Party. Um, we've got a gerontocracy right now. We've had for a while. Um, at, Biden arguably has exacerbated that, made it much worse. Um, this is a guy who's decomposing right before our very eyes. It's and it's uh, in um, what way? Give us a specific. <clears throat> um, he's just not with it, you know. What about and, the State of the Union? Yeah, as you, as you looked I, at the State I, of the Union, I will Union. give him political points okay. for laying out a trap that the Republicans walked right into. Um, I'll, I'll give him that. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I don't think the Republicans really have their act together, um, is, is uh, in the way that I would like them to. Um, but the Democrats have had a problem with the gerontocracy for a long, long time. Um, Nancy Pelosi was wise to step down. Um, Senia Hoyer um, is also up there, yeah. I, I think late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. You know, you had Dianne Feinstein who uh, said that she wouldn't run again, and then a reporter asked her about it, and she challenged him, like forgetting, yeah. forgetting that, that she announced that she wouldn't run yeah. again. This will be an issue. Um, it'll be uh, made more glaring if the Republicans nominate someone other than Trump. And I don't think, I highly doubt, it'll be close to impossible for Joe Biden to run the basement campaign that he did in 2020. Dan, are you worried about uh, Ron DeSantis because of his age, because of being the governor of a very popular state, having won with a huge margin? Are you worried that he would be the Republican challenger? No. Um, I've got two reactions. One is, I hope it's not Trump for the country's sake. Ron DeSantis okay. is not a criminal. Ron DeSantis is, you know, not a, a thief. He's not a grifter. He's a right-wing politician, but he doesn't pose a threat to the republic the way that I believe Donald Trump does. So I am rooting for the Republican Party to pick somebody besides Donald Trump uh, for the good of the country, just in case it goes their way in 2024. Is there anybody else that you think seriously could get that nomination? I don't fully understand the grip of – I don't understand how so many Republicans could vote for Donald Trump knowing what he is, what a seditionist uh, – I, I don't I don't get it. I have to admit, I don't get how people could vote for the guy. So I can't give you any good prediction. Well, they like what he did when he was president. They may not be fans of him what happened on what happened on January sixth. But also because of these recent revelations about uh, the you know the, the, the way in which uh, the, the deep state was out to get him, the way the FBI weighed in <clears throat> on the under hunt on the Hunter Biden issue to kill that issue before people voted. And if they would have known about it, they might they might have voted differently. I mean, there's a lot of reasons that people think that Donald Trump, you know, got got really beaten up and ganged up on. And it was he was right when he said they were out to get him. I mean, yeah. in the issue of fairness, don't you think a lot of Americans think that he was treated so unfairly that they will give him a second chance or at least Republican primary voters? I mean. I think any Republican primary voter who's given somebody like DeSantis or maybe Nikki Haley's not conservative enough or whatever, but still picks the criminal, 
I think, you know, needs to look in the mirror a little bit. Are you worried about that? Um, I Well, to, just to piggyback off sure. of what you said, I, I think one huge blind spot on the left is um, letting their moral outrage cloud their political judgment. Right. Um, there's two things Donald Trump um, was a beneficiary of. One is picking enemies very well. And he, he had a native skill at that. The yes. other is he had, um, and I'll, I'll finish this at the uh, when we come back, but um, Democrats overreacted time and time again. He was incredibly lucky that, that yeah. Democrats overreacted. And, and they always do. Yeah. I'm Bruce Dumont, 1-800-723-8289. More talk and your assessment of the primary appeals, Democrats and Republicans. Hello. You know, these days, I'm often quoted as saying, you can't believe everything you read on the internet. People forget that I was the first technology president using the telegraph, T-mails as I like to call them, to communicate with my generals. Well, today, we are fighting a cybersecurity war, and our best defense is for folks to follow some of these tips when they're online. If it seems too good to be true, it probably is. Hover your cursor over links to determine the true web address. Look for misspellings and poor grammar, which are warning signs of fraud. Be suspicious of emails requesting urgent action and never give away sensitive personal information. With malware for none, with cyber protection for all, this is your humble servant, Abraham Lincoln. The central and midwestern U.S. averages more than 850 tornadoes each year. And lately, the number of floods has been rising in the region, too. So chances are, there will be more twisters and floods near here again. And between school, sports, and social lives, chances are, you won't be with your kids when it happens. Will they know what to do? Ready.gov kids has all the educational tools and information to make the conversation easy. When the time comes, chances are, they'll feel prepared, not scared. So talk with your family today. Bruce Dumont back, and we're talking with Chris Veronis and Dan Johnson, and we were talking about uh, national politics. A, an issue that took place, and we normally don't talk about what happened in Chicago, but what happened in Chicago since we last met uh, has become a national story. Lori Lightfoot uh, was defeated in her primary. She finished third uh, in a race of nine. And uh, Dan Johnson, uh, uh, you're, uh, you're for Brandon Johnson. Well, look, I like... But you like them both. I think they're both great. Now he's going to be political. He's going, okay, walk the line for us. <laughs> walk the line. Well, look, uh, you Brandon, like them both. Brandon Johnson... Whoever and, wins, the city will win. Yeah, it's, Well, this one's true. Okay. I mean, we've had a... I, I think people should feel very bullish on Chicago. Our next mayor, which is happening in two months, mm -hmm. is going to be collaborative, cooperative, a policy wonk. The era of the boss, big shoulders, I'm in charge, is coming to an end. And they both, and you know, I know this is the time when we escalate differences. Right. But both of them say, hey, we have a crime issue. And they both say the fundamental problem is underinvestment in poorer communities. What did you think of Brandon Johnson's election night victory speech turning into a, a nonstop attack 
on on Paul Vallis after Paul Vallis had been very gracious, you know, 35 minutes earlier in his victory speech. Well, look, he's in I mean, second. Well, and it's, it's a five-week campaign. I mean, it's extraordinary. It's like a European Dan, election. it's election night. Right. I mean, most people are at least pleasant on election night. That, look. His, it's a hatchet job. His, Brandon has a narrower path, and his path has to be making the case that the, it has to elevate the contrasts. So, but it was it was right after Paul Vallis said we're going to make this about issues. It's not going to be personal. And 35 minutes later, Brandon Johnson is making personal. Your reaction? Yeah, I, I assume you I, voted for Vallis. I, I did vote for Vallis. I'm I'm pleased with the outcome. I, I don't share Dan's knack for whistling past the graveyard. Chicago's got a long way to go. I don't know if uh, changing uh, who's in the fifth floor of the of city halls is going to do much. Uh, it's just beyond crime, which is like sort of a singular problem here, unlike other big cities. Got the biggest pension liabilities in the country with property tax burden, I think, is number one. Number two, um, we've got serious problems here. And, uh, you know, good riddance to Lori Lightfoot, honestly. I mean, an authoritarian, not very likable combined with um, dismissing the, the crime did in the city. Did you vote for and, her and first time around? I did. So did I. I did. And I was happy to vote for Vallis. And, you know, the crime has gotten to the point in the city where it's sort of creating a 9-11 type of memory where either you've experienced crime or you know someone who has. And like just myself in like late December, I can remember sitting sitting at home around 10 o'clock. I hear a pop, 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 unmistakable gunshots, double murder, uh, a block and a half away from my house in Ravenswood. You know, and so um, this is uh, this is where we are, where criminals are brazen fearless they don't they they and that um has a lot to do with the fact that they know the rules of engagement for the police are all about restraint they can't give chase cops will tell you this if you ask them so um lori lightfoot was very dismissive arrogant lecturing uh white voters like you really don't know what crime is what so it's it's a good thing that she's gone. What what can the Democrats do? Not not in Chicago, not just in Chicago, but nationally. What can they do to speak to the voters, the angry voters, many of whom are Democrats, mm-hmm. about the law and order or the crime issue? Because when I hear a politician, and by the way, both Paul Vallis and Brandon Johnson have talked about community policing. You hear that all the time, community policing. Yeah, Mayor Daly was right. What does it no? But what does it mean? But does, does community policing stop the um, the personal attitudes, the lack of respect that exists in large pockets of Chicago and elsewhere in urban areas where they're not interested in the tactic of how the police department polices. They just have no value for human beings. How, how, does, a, how does a politician change that? I, I think uh, I've read which is really interesting if you kind of think of it like a virus, that there are people that are, uh, you know, don't have any respect for other people, uh, violent, um, you know, a lot of issues. Bad stacked guys. Up. Yeah, there are. Well, can a Democrat say Most that? of them can are. Can a Democrat say that? Absolutely. Well, yes, it's a you reality. You just said it. Right? Uh, but at the same time, we can also recognize that. You know, we we are the false confession capital of the country that our method of policing from 30 and 40 years ago where we had torture centers 
that's in the past. And we can also say having a wealth-based system for incarceration, we don't want cash bail anymore. We want risk-based incarceration. So the future is how do we take all those elements and provide true public safety? And what's amazing, I'll close with this. There's a real debate in this mayoral race about that. And I'm not convinced there's that much daylight between Paul Vallis and Brandon Johnson. Because it's true, uh, right? There, it's just those there, where we're well, at. There, there is um, blinding daylight when it comes to educational policy. I mean, Paul Vallis that's fair. is very that's fair. pro charter school. Yes, that's at fair. Brandon Johnson is a union organizer. Okay, like yeah. the school teacher. teachers, you need to get one of their own in the mayor's office, yeah. which is horrifying to me. Horrifying if you think about it. Well, our uh, battle in Chicago is really between the power of the teaching union, the teachers union, and the power of the police department and the fraternal order of police. Our two leading, you know, unions are on opposite sides here. Yeah, that, that in a law and order, in a crime area, in a is crime true. issue, it's, it would seem to me that the, 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 the pro-police guy or the per- person perceived to be pro-police, and that would be Paul Vallis, is that he would have a, a leg up over someone that wants to talk about crime in a long-term situation. He wants to talk about, you know, what, what causes crime. How do we how do we invest in neighborhoods? He's it, talking it, about things that the, won't have an answer. We won't know whether it's right or wrong for 20 or 30 years. I don't think that's fair. The, the, well, the uh, police union is undergoing scrutiny that it hasn't had before and really hasn't found its footing, especially with qualified immunity. Um, all, all, all the scrutiny that, that's been on police in like the last several years. The union, though, the Chicago Teachers Union, holds like a really special uh, place of power in this city where mayors have been toppled once they've taken a run at the unions. Ron mm-hmm. Emanuel right. contributed to him not running again. Certainly it didn't help Lori Lightfoot. It's scary to think how much power this, this teachers union has in this city. Um, and, uh, and I, I think Chicagoans should, should take a real close look. I don't know why people are so scared of a teacher's union. I don't get it. I don't understand there to me. There's this, like people have like a rhetoric about the fear of a bunch of teachers. And it's about 10, 12,000 people in a city of 3 million that happen to say our schools should be open later. We should be paid more. And we should have all the resources that an affluent suburb does. I don't know why there is like fear in the water that. Well, because they they were the ones that wanted to keep, uh, you know, the schools closed during uh, right during the COVID. True. And they were the ones that in their union contract brought in all kinds of issues like housing for the poor, all kinds of ancillary issues. They were they were left issues, but. They didn't have anything to do with teaching in the classroom. Well, if you're yeah. teaching impoverished communities and you know, hey, how many how many well, kids are homeless in Chicago? Let me you, ask you this. Yeah. I would assume that you like the recent investigations that have been made into the Chicago Police Department to find out how many racist or radical uh, policemen. Insurrectionists. Insurrectionists yes. that we have. You, you're concerned about that. Absolutely. How would you be concerned or would you be concerned if people wanted to do the same thing with teachers and find out how many teachers are so politically uh, uh, focused that they're indoctrinating the kids of Chicago, that, that, they, that, they, that they represent a different type of, of cancer, if you will, 
within the ranks. I'm not worried about a teacher's. You're not worried. You're only worried about a police officer. Well, I said a police officer that's an insurrectionist, which is a threat to the republic, which I don't think we ought to minimize, versus a teacher who says, gee, I think every one of our kids should have housing and maybe we should get free lunches and free breakfast. I'm cool with that. If, Chris. if, if you put aside a moment, the, like the, the uh, obnoxious conflict of interest, the whole idea of um, a public sector teachers union getting a, its own candidate elected and negotiating with that candidate for a collective bargaining, yeah. bargaining agreement. You don't have a problem with Paul like, doing like, that like, with like the that's cops. Like obnoxious, you know, and something, by the way, like Franklin Delano Roosevelt was like really concerned about. If you put that aside, Chicago teachers unions are some of the best paid teachers in the country. And there is serious anger among parents about what teachers did during COVID, where they put their interests first. Chicago Teachers Union does not care about kids. That's it's a, all uh, about power and dues. Absurd That's all it is. Absurd. And, 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 and then they freelance with identity politics and they get further and further away from education. Um, uh, like Chicago's numbers are like at the bottom of the country. The Chicago Teachers Union deserves some of the responsibility for that. Two things. It's absurd outcomes. to say teachers don't care about kids, number one. I'd say everybody in the country with a job would like to get paid more. Somehow, that's a bad thing if you're an educator. I don't understand that logic. And third, I will concede, the COVID thing, that caused a bruise. Oh, yeah. And that, and that we'd prefer to show that. Which they don't acknowledge. acknowledge, which yeah. they paper over. And, you know, there's going to be a comeuppance at the ballot box. I think that's fair. That is the biggest liability. That bruise from saying we don't want in-person learning, that is a lasting bruise. And defunding the police. That's another. Who came up with that term? I would love to know who came (laughs) up with the term defund the police. We've got to pause. 1-800-723-8029. When we come back. We'll be going a long, long way. We'll be going to the island nation of Bahrain, and we'll be bringing Mark Miller into our conversation. Mike Miller. Stand is precise. No margin for error. Dare to forget that. Dare to have fun with it. Get weird with it. Dare to send those old STEM theories flying past the neighbor's house into outer space. Dare to program something internet-breaking, record-breaking. Dare to blow their minds. Dare to learn the difference between sedimentary and metamorphic rock. Go find those rocks. Dare to keep daring. Dare to STEM. Check out She Can STEM to get started. STEM is precise, no margin for error. Dare to forget that. Dare to have fun with it. Get weird with it. Dare to send those old STEM theories flying past the neighbor's house into outer space. Dare to program something internet-breaking, record-breaking. Dare to blow their minds. Dare to learn the difference between sedimentary and metamorphic rock. Go find those rocks. Dare to keep daring. Dare to STEM. Check out She Can STEM to get started. Bruce Dumont back. We continue with Beyond the Beltway. Chris Veronis and Dan Johnson join me in the studio. And joining us now is Mike Miller, uh, professor at DePaul University. He's an economics professor. And he joins us from the island nation of Bahrain. 
I think you're the longest, you're the furthest <laughs> guest ever to appear on this program, and it looks like you're sitting across the uh, aisle from He's me here. Really beyond the bellwether. Yeah. I wondered about that. It's about uh, seven, little over 7,000 miles as a plane. Okay. But uh, it's great to be with you, Bruce. I, I, I've been listening Thank you to the much. show so far. Good. Yeah. And you're, not, you're nine hours ahead of us. But my, my question yes. to you is, give us, give us a little, before we get into the economics, which I always am interested in your comments on, give us a little bit about history on the island nation of Bahrain. I think most people probably know it uh, because it's a large military base uh, in the Middle East. But uh, what more can you tell us? Yeah, it, it's a, a small island right between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Iran believes it belongs to them, and, and so there is a, a lot of animus between Bahrain and Iran. Uh, uh, Bahrain is, a, uh, is the home of the Fifth Fleet. It is a strong ally of the United States. Uh, it's an island of about one and a half million people, and what makes it interesting, several things, it's a constitutional monarchy. Um, and of the, as an economist, you look at the economy, of all the workers, three quarters of all the workers are expats and one quarter are the actual Bahrainis themselves. Uh, so the, the Bahraini citizens are 99.9% .9 Muslim, but the country, when you look at the entire population, including the expat, expats, is very diverse. So it's a, it's a very interesting place to be. And um, I enjoy my visits here and I, the students are great. There's nothing to see, it's a, it's a desert island. Mm -hmm. There really is nothing to see. But um, so they have not the they, they, they've not invested in it. It isn't another cutter insofar as the beauty of the, the, the large cities. Uh, well, it has a lot of the tall buildings and so forth. But in terms of any kind of natural beauty, I mean, it's a, it's a desert island. There's no mountains. Mm -hmm. There's it does have the it's in what they call here the the uh, Arabian Gulf. Mm -hmm. They do not call it the Persian Gulf as we do. It's called the no, Arabian. No Gulf. indoors ski slopes, Mike. Uh, no, they don't have an endorsed uh, ski slope, um, but it's a popular place for some to go, like Saudis, because they serve alcohol here. Uh, uh, they do it discreetly, but uh, you can get mm -hmm. alcohol here, and, okay. and uh, so it's open to tourists. And what is the uh, what is, what is the general feeling uh, about President Biden there? I have not. Uh, I try to stay away from politics with my students because that's that's not what we're we're here to talk about. So they mm -hmm. have not told me what they uh, what they think of of Mr. Trump before or Mr. Biden today. I I couldn't what get is a straight your, answer. What is your personal assessment about uh, how viable he would be if he uh, ran again uh, in twenty four? Uh, I it is my opinion that he is mentally uh, slipping. Uh, I'm 69 years old, and I have sometimes where I can't find exactly the word I want. He's 80 years old, and uh, it's not his age. There are many people who are, are his 80 years old who are completely sharp. He is not sharp, and that worries me that he gets on the international stage, and and he doesn't know exactly what's going on. He often seems to be completely unaware of his surroundings. And I like Joe Biden, you know, of, of all the people in Washington, one I wouldn't mind sitting down and having a, uh, some iced tea and a, and a pizza with, it would be Joe Biden. I, 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 but he's, he scares me. You know, uh, Mike makes a good point. Power. Chris Veronis has got a I, comment. I was just going to say, I was in Washington, D.C. just a couple weekends ago, um, walking right past the Capitol. There was a press conference. Bernie Sanders was there, sharp as a blade. Oh, uh, my, it, Sanders. It, it, there's, there's an, always it's just credit. an incredible incredible contrast between Biden and Sanders. The energy that's, that's there, right. the acuity, 
Biden doesn't have it. But let's let let's talk uh, for a moment. I'll let Dan Johnson weigh in on this. Uh, if it isn't Joe Biden, isn't Kamala Harris the logical person to be the nominee? Or how does someone other than her uh, wrest that nomination from her? I think it is Joe Biden. Um, I think the 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 uh, stuttering is an underappreciated aspect to why I think he's he's not as quick, um, and he can be he, he he can't speak a little slowly. But I feel like people kind of overlook the stuttering thing is a real thing, right? And it does slow people down, and it is a verbal disability. Now to my question. How does any other Democrat push oh, Kamala Harris aside? All right, look, look. Let, all right, we'll play the game, right? <laughs> Let's say Uncle Joe, you know, passes away right now, right? And so it's just, it's an open field. There'll be a dozen candidates within a week. There is, I, I think, no deference paid by anyone to anyone in an open seat like this. Just like, if, just if, like, if, you know, Hillary Clinton wasn't deferential to Joe Biden, you know, putting aside Joe's troubles, you know, losing mm -hmm. his son at the time. But had that not been the case, right? And if Joe had a clear path personally, right? No family tragedies at the time. No. There's no deference paid to anybody. Yeah. If it's an open seat, it's an open if, seat. If I could add subtitles for the, the viewers of Beyond the yes. Beltway to what Dan just said, <laughs> yeah. there's no way in hell I want to Kamala Harris as the nominee of my be... party. No way in hell. I'm <laughs> saying she could be fine, but I, I honestly don't believe it'll happen. But I also don't think there's, you know, anything stopping anybody else from running should it open up, which I don't believe it will, or should. Is there, uh, it, do you see someone on the horizon, uh, uh, Mike, who uh, who you, you like? I know, but for those that don't know, I mean, initially you uh, were not for uh, President or Donald Trump, and you did not vote for him uh, in 16, but you did come around to become a fan. You voted for him in 20. Uh, where are you now with him and uh other people in the field. I have, um, I, I will not vote for Donald Trump. And, you know, when it comes to it, was there a point where I said, uh, he's a very imperfect human being as all human beings are. Uh, but, and what I liked about him were his policies, except some of his economic policies. I want more free trade than he wants. But he, I think he made good decisions where he put America first. And I liked that. But he made a comment not that long ago, which bothered me dramatically. And that was uh, something about putting him back in power or whatever, even if we have to suspend the Constitution. <laughs> right. And when a man who was president or looks to be president even says that in joking, I write him off. To me, the thing that protects me from the government and from other people is the U.S. Constitution. And I hold it very, very sacred. And for Donald Trump to even... And he wasn't joking about it. For him to say such a thing was so fundamentally preposterous that I just, I cannot. I, I, I'm it. just, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just, I, I'm, I appreciate you saying that. I don't understand how anybody who swears an oath to the Constitution, and there's tens of millions of us that do that, every local mm -hmm. public elected official, every sure. police officer, mm -hmm. I don't know how anyone could support Donald Trump. Um, for the reason that Mike just described. He's a threat to our republic. Well, we'll he, see if there's he people is now. listening to this evening. Um, Say that one more time, Mike. I, I don't believe that he was as president. I, I think he has he has gotten into a revenge 
almost like revenge porn. It, it's almost pornography what he's doing. And, and I'm, <clears throat> I almost feel sorry for him and I wish he would step aside. Uh, what does it I, I cannot, can you answer can you Kamala answer Harris, Dan's I, question? I can tell you though that Kamala Harris scares me even more. So if she became president, I I don't know what Well then the, the the reality is that uh if 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 people some people get their way and Joe Biden runs for re-election, I don't see him dumping Kamala Harris. So if you go to the polls in twenty four, you're going to be voting for Joe Biden or you're going to be voting for Kamala Harris because it is likely that within four years, Joe Biden might have a health incident that would render him uh, impossible to govern. So you're voting no, he will you know, that, that vote. Yeah. So, I, I've had uh, family members who have had dementia and so forth. Joe Biden will not survive until the end of a second term without having essentially gone downhill where he cannot operate uh, in a job like the presidency. What about, let's take a moment to talk about uh, the economy, uh, where it is at the moment. You're a visitor to this program once a month, and sure. you give your assessment on uh, the economic condition and uh, what it looks like in the future. Well, I'll tell you, Bruce, uh, I've been at this a long time, since 1980, and this is one of the oddest economies, uh, economic combinations I've ever seen. If you look at it through the eyes of the labor market, we have the strongest, most impressive labor market we have essentially have ever had in the past 50 or more years. We have unemployment rates, which are in historic lows. We are creating jobs at an unbelievably strong pace. So when you look at it through the eyes of GDP or uh, through uh, the labor market, it's just exceptional. If you look at it through GDP, it's not too bad. Uh, GDP is near or above potential, which is good. But we all know what the real problem is and what Americans are responding to, and that is the, uh, is the inflation. And the inflation was rooted in several things. The supply chain was part of it, but a lot of it goes back to the fact that the federal government spent a whole bunch of money that it borrowed and the Federal Reserve printed. And that printing of the money, along with the, a large amount of demand where there was no supply, led to the inflation. And the Fed is doing one thing, that is they're trying to fight the inflation by reducing demand by raising interest rates, which they have to do because that's, their, that's what they're told to do by, uh, by the Congress. And so what we have now is we have almost a, a weird economy where we have really great news, a labor market. We have really bad news in terms of prices. We have really bad news in terms of housing. Uh, we see that production is beginning to slow. The ISM index, industrial production are both slowing. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, GDP is growing. It, it, it's, it's a very odd uh, correlation between these things. They're, they're not correlating okay. the way they normally When do. we come back, I want to talk about how Joe Biden takes advantage of that and how he communicates that message to the public. I'm Bruce Dumont, back shortly from Chicago. This is Beyond the Beltway. No margin for error. Dare to forget that. Dare to have fun with it. Get weird with it. Dare to send those old STEM theories flying past the neighbor's house into outer space. Dare to program something internet breaking, record breaking. 
Dare to blow their minds. Dare to learn the difference between sedimentary and metamorphic rock. Go find those rocks. Dare to keep daring. Dare to STEM. Check out She Can STEM to get started. With instant acceleration, electric cars are more fun to drive and more affordable than ever. Electric cars are here. Plug in to the present. <laughs> we continue on Beyond the Beltway, and uh, uh, in the wake of the uh, derailment uh, in uh, East Palestine, Ohio, uh, the uh, members of Congress, uh, they did get together in a, in a bipartisan way in the U.S. Senate. They came up with a railroad safety bill, and I want to go through some of the points and get reaction from everybody because there there was another incident in Ohio yesterday. It was not uh, deemed very serious, but the issue of how uh, the government was involved in what they did or did not do in the wake of East Palestine. And also it goes to whether the president has made a mistake by not going to East Palestine. And then, uh, and then also uh, uh, Pete Buttigieg uh, arriving there a little bit uh, late in his fancy shoes. It continues to be an issue. But uh, we're going to go through uh, right now some of the bullet, bullet points. Uh, this, this is the Railway Safety Act of 2023. And there are new safety requirements for hazmat cargo. It provides advance notice to state emergency response officials because nobody gave advance warning to Ohio or any other state during the recent uh, derailment. There are new requirements to prevent blocked grade crossings, which continue to be a health issue in this country, safety issue. And then also it establishes requirements for wayside wheel defect detectors. Hazmat train wheels are scanned by detectors every 10 miles because they overheated in the most recent case and uh, the new safety requires that to be done every 10 miles. It strengthens, strengthens hazmat train inspections, which have been somewhat uh, tardy. And then also it requires well-trained two-person crews to work the trains, that's really going to tick off the unions because they, they've been besides themselves with a requirement for two-person crews. It heightens fines for safety violations because the most recent violations were $10,000, which is a pittance to any major railroad. And then it provides grants to local communities for hazmat incident training. So this is the way that the federal government, at least six members of the United States uh, Senate, the two senators from Ohio and the two senators from Pennsylvania, and also Marco Rubio and Josh Hawley, uh, joining that group to present uh, this uh, Railroad Safety Act of 2023. And uh, Mike Miller, I want to give you uh, a, a sense to weigh in on that. I guess some of the opposition suggests that it's too intrusive on the owners of railroads and will make life too difficult for them. But in this political climate, uh, are they going to have many people that will be supportive of them, primarily in the no, U.S. House? 
I don't think so. Uh, it, it will raise the cost. We have to understand this will raise the cost of transportation and so forth. There's also one other thing, though. You know, uh, I don't want to make this necessary left and right, but one way of transporting some of the hazardous materials is through pipelines. And of course, the left or the Democrats are oftentimes against pipelines, and pipelines are some of the safest ways to transport these kinds of uh, uh, materials that, that exist, especially, for example, oil. But if you have to put it onto a train car, you have a much higher probability that there's going to be a spill and a, and a problem. And, and so we have to weigh costs and benefits. Uh, certainly, if these, uh, if these particular safety features can be put into place, that's fine. But understand, you're going to have to pay more for every, every mile, ton mile that is transported. So yeah. uh, there, it's, it's definitely going to raise the price of transportation. Christopher Onis, uh, if you were hired, you're a high-priced uh, public relations executive. If you were hired by the railroad companies, how would you kill this legislation? The, the mayor, uh, well, I mean, the, the legislation is something entirely different. I mean, like half of the things that you mentioned in there have nothing to do um, with what happened, uh, the, the incident itself. It's just the Democratic hobby horses that they get to lard into this bill, stuff that mm -hmm. they've been... Um, campaigning for for a long, long time. I would add to what Mike said that um, rail transportation is the safest way to transport hazardous materials. materials. Mm -hmm. We don't have the pipeline infrastructure in place. Um, we've got rail infrastructure, though. It's very efficient and very safe. The alternative would be roads, okay? And no one wants that. And by the way, accidents have been declining year over year for a long time there's a downward trend mm -hmm. i realize that you know spouting these statistics mean very little to the people of east palestine but and certainly for, for someone like with an ear of tin like pete Buttigieg saying yeah. like you know we got a thousand thousand derailments a year or well, they, they didn't want to hear that it's, it's still true though i mean if you separate politics from this issue Dan, uh, how serious is this issue uh, politically to the president the fact that he's not been there yet and Buddha judge arrived late, and uh, there seems to be a gnashing of teeth about uh, the federal government's response, at least politically. I think politically, it makes the classic, ongoing, permanent Republican campaign of rolling back regulations and trying to do whatever you can to pad the bottom line of big corporations and blocking labor unions from implementing reasonable safety regulations. It makes it great for people to understand that this is the kind of big government regulation that Republicans say is so bad, and they fall into line like, yeah, we should have listened to the Democrats. Yes, so regulations are not, great. The House will not will not jump on this. Oh, I, 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 I mean, hope they do, but right. this is a typical Democrats like safety regulations. Democrats like to listen to labor unions that say these trains are unsafe and we need to staff them properly, and Republicans almost always say, now we're going to go with the company on this one. Mike Miller, give us 15-second well, response. Uh, yeah, they, the proposal that was that uh, Trump wouldn't let go through had nothing to do with this particular accident. This accident had to do with an axle overheating and the thing crashing. No, right. there was not a piece of legislation would have stopped axles yeah. from overheating and, and the and, train And the crew did everything right. Right. And, and they also did everything the, right. That's right. correct. And the, uh, I believe the Washington, the Washington Post also reported that, that uh, Trump was not... Uh, complicit in this particular and everybody situation. loves the federal epa comes in aggressively well, well trained well funded ready to protect the people do they want their do they want somebody of authority there within 48 hours though 
because I've heard it argued both ways. You don't want you don't want leadership there because it's going to disrupt the, the the work that has to be done. But then if they wait too long, it looks like they don't care or they're halfway around the world giving billions of dollars away to the Ukraine. When we come back, Mike Miller, thank you very much for joining us from DePaul University. Join us from the island of Bahrain. We'll see you uh, next month. And we'll be back with a full hour of Beyond the Beltway coming up with Lieutenant Colonel. Roll over. Chance high five. All right. When you adopt a shelter pet, you discover all the things that make them unique. And your mother and... I am totally a hot person. Right, guys? Thanks for being honest. They're a little bit of a lot of things, but they're all pure love. Adopt pure love at theshelterpetproject.org. Dallas, St. Louis, Nashville, Tuscaloosa. All major cities to feel the destruction caused by a direct hit from a tornado. Is Chicago next? It's not a question of if, but when, and the clock is ticking. Learn what to do now at ready.illinois.gov to become Tornado Ready. Rooster back. we continue with Beyond the Beltway. Thanks very much for joining us this evening. In the studio with me, I have a Democrat, Dan Johnson. He is a political consultant and lobbyist. And Chris Veronis is here. He is a Republican businessman and president of Aesop Communications. And uh, joining us now from his home in uh, Pennsylvania, I believe, is Clay Novak. He's a retired lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army and author of a new book called Keep Moving, Keep Shooting. And we'll talk about that uh, a little bit later on. Uh, and it is a novel. And we'll let him tell the, the story of that a little bit later in the broadcast. But again, it's nice to have a retired uh, member of the U.S. military with us. And uh, we're going to focus on military-related issues in this hour. And uh, Colonel, we thank you very much for uh, for joining us tonight. And uh, I, I want to ask you at the beginning, of, of all of the military operations and all of the military-related issues this country has at this moment, including involvement in, in, in Ukraine and uh, Taiwan and problems with China and Russia, uh, as well as our southern border. What do you think is the most or the biggest challenge to the U.S. military right now? Uh, first, thanks, Bruce, for having me. Um, Good. Happy to be here. Uh, but to address your question, I think Probably the biggest concern right now, at least in my opinion, is uh, China, uh, truthfully. And, and I say that in the sense that post, you know, World War II, we designated the Soviets and especially post Vietnam, we designated the Soviets as our number one threat to the United States and the military as a whole, as a body, um, took that to heart. We restructured, we rebuilt our manning processes, we developed new equipment. Uh, we developed new tactics and we trained specifically because we knew that the Soviets were our biggest threat. Um, we have in defense uh, documents now designated the Chinese as a big as as our likely biggest threat, but we've done nothing to rebuild, restructure, 
uh, our current military, which has been fighting a counterinsurgency, counterterrorism fight for the last 20 years, um, to, to address what is our biggest threat, and that is China. Right now, we're at a disadvantage. If we had to react immediately, um, we, we would be at a severe disadvantage to fight any kind of direct conflict with China. Is war with China inevitable? I don't know if it's necessarily inevitable. Um, I think diplomacy goes a long way. And obviously, um, you know, armed conflict is the, the tail end, probably the worst case scenario, but it is a form of diplomacy. Um, but I, I don't think it's inevitable. I think there's a lot of politics and policy that can happen uh, to avert something like that. Um, I think that a Cold War with China, uh, very, again, reminiscent of, of what we went through specifically in the 80s with the Soviets, um, is probably you know, on the horizon within the next few years, if not the, already started. The alerts that are out there right now is that China may soon uh, provide support uh, to Russia in their battle in Ukraine. Uh, what sort of uh, support would they provide them? Would it just be, would it be exclusively military or are there other things that China could do? And if they do that, uh, how should the U.S. respond? Well, I, I mean, obviously, it would be a full spectrum support would be available. I mean, China has every asset available to them, um, you know, whether it's economic uh, or, or military, you know, they can provide uh, monetary, they can provide equipment support, they could, you know, try and close some of the trade gaps that the, the West is, uh, you know, imposing on Russia at this point. China has the capability to provide anything and everything that we can't or won't as the West. Um, so... I think that it, it won't be limited to military uh, military support. And I think our response as a nation um, has got to be tied in with NATO. Uh, whatever we decide has got to be tied in with NATO uh, because anything that happens in the Ukraine uh, is, affects all of NATO and all of Europe. Um, so it can't just be the U.S. doing what we feel is right and what we decide is, is the right thing to do. It's got to be a joint effort. I want to get a reaction from our partisans in studio. Dan, you're the Democrat. Uh, China appears to have some problems with Democrats in addition to Republicans at the moment. Um, I, I don't think war is inevitable. I do think they are clearly a rising threat, like the rise of authoritarians around the world and our country helping to lead the free world uh, with uh, rule of law and democracy. It's a battle. And I... Um, I think there's a growing consensus that the threat is real and ultimately um, people want to be free. Isn't there a growing consensus also that uh, the Chinese Communist Party may be behind the uh, uh, the COVID uh, leak out of their lab? Uh, and I, if so, yeah. how should the United States and how should the rest of the world respond if that is true, which yeah. we now have evidence that suggests it is true. I did wonder that, isn't there some liability, right, for, I think the emerging thought is it was basically a mistake, sloppy housekeeping, and they let it out, and, you know, it wasn't intentional, but uh, all the lab theory was probably right. It'd be a pretty wild coincidence if it just happened to emerge right where they're working on coronavirus research is my take. Chris but I, I was wondering, yeah. shouldn't they pay for this? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, well, they, they you, should you pay know something. Who else should pay? How about the radical left 
in the United States that canceled and shut down any discussion about lab leak uh, during COVID. People were tarred and feathered um, it, for merely raising the question. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. And now you've got Department of Energy, you've got the FBI basically saying, yeah, the, this, the lab leak did, did come from But those are, th th those are things that, in, you know, 50 years ago would have been acts of war. And, and my question to you is, yeah. how do well, politically <clears throat> the Republican Party is divided now between globalists and, and uh, isolationists? Uh, and I think that's going to be one of the major debates. I hope it's going to be one of the major debates Bruce, as we head towards the nomination. This is probably one of the reasons why, even though I did not support Trump in both election cycles, why I've eased up on him. Because there's one person... Um, which explains why China is now on the map as a major policy issue in this country, and it's Donald Trump. If Donald Trump had not been elected, you would not have this level of bipartisan scrutiny on China, where, you've, where you had Democrats and Republicans clamoring for this committee that's been set up um, uh, from the Wisconsin congressman. So, I mean, the, you, the, thank you, Donald Trump, for, for doing that, for... for raising the stakes and um, explaining how China has just been getting a pass uh, for the last 20 years. Colonel, do you agree with uh, what Chris just said about Donald Trump? Um, I, I definitely agree with the fact that China's been getting a pass for the last 20 years. Um, if you look uh, at what they own specifically on the African continent, and they've been doing it very, very quietly, um, but it's it's an economic uh and for effort on their part to control that continent. And it's been done quietly, but the, the, you know, the alert that's been raised, um, like Chris said, uh, is, uh, you know, it's kind of alerted everybody. And I think we've all got eyes on China, obviously COVID, you know, the coronavirus, you know, added to all of that. Um, but it's, it's brought more scrutiny on, on every piece of what China is doing and, and not just, uh, not just the coronavirus. Okay. We're going to pause on that point. 1-800-723-8289. What do we do with China? I'm Bruce Dumont. Back shortly. Lieutenant Colonel uh, Clay Novak joins us along with uh, Chris Veronis and Dan Johnson. And uh, I want to go back to you, uh, Colonel, because we've talked about uh, China in the first segment of our broadcast. Uh, let's switch gears and talk about Russia and uh, the likelihood of uh, long-term success for them in Ukraine. Is Again, is that inevitable or are we in a situation now where this is going to take forever to finish this uh, this incursion? So, I, I, Bruce, I think that it depends on how much NATO continues to be involved. Um, we can, we as a collective, uh, NATO can continue to fund back field uh, with equipment uh, Ukrainian forces for as long as we can afford it economically or as long as we feel that we need to support them. Um, and that can, as long as that conflict remains in the relatively small geographic space of Ukraine, um, it can last for a very, very long time. Uh, and we have that ability, uh, again, as the 30 NATO nations 
to, to provide them what they need uh, to, to drag this out until either, you know, Putin's out of office, they lose interest, or it becomes economically untenable for Russia to continue. Is there any uh, indication that uh, there is softness within the military in Russia or within the populace that they will turn on Vladimir Putin? That, that was certainly a narrative a year ago, but after a year of uh, support and ongoing activities, uh, how likely is that? Well, so you've still got a conscript military uh, in Russia. So any time, and it's obviously it's very large and it's highly dependent upon uh, conscript service. So anytime you're highly dependent upon that population uh, and unwilling or uh, non-voluntary force, uh, you're going to start to get some some dissent, especially as this drags on longer and longer. Um, I, I don't know at the upper ranks, uh, you know, how soft things are, how much conflict there really is. Um, but the quality of the, the Russian military will continue to go down uh, as as you know, this conflict goes on and, and their confidence and willingness to fight will go right along with it. One other issue that's gotten some publicity in recent years is uh, the declining uh, enrollment in U.S. armed services and whether or not the United States is ever going to get to a day when we don't have enough young men and women who are willing to stand up and uh, join the military. Are you as, as a long-term viewer of, of U.S. military policy uh, and as an officer, uh, I would assume that's a big concern for you, is it not? Oh, it's a massive concern, Bruce. Um, in fact, I, I had a conversation. I was in a classroom full of high school seniors just the other day and, and asked them, you know, uh, kind of relate to them, this is the first time since, uh, you know, our all-volunteer force uh, started in 1975 that we are really this concerned about, um, you know, our re missing recruiting goals, which we did in 2022 and, and had to dip into the recruiting pool for 2023 to even come close to meeting those goals, which we failed at in most of the services. And I asked them, you know, because they're the target population for military right. recruiters, those 18 year olds, why, why in their opinion is, is their generation uh, less interested in, in serving? Um, and I got, four very distinct answers. One of them, which was uh, pretty funny and very blatant, but also very true, is the first answer was war is scary. And I said, yeah, I, I, I've yep. been there. <laughs> I've been there five times and I agree with you. And that's not something to, uh, you know, to take lightly. So that, but on the, and I explained to them that this is also the first time in 20 years that we have not been actively participating, uh, you know, in a conflict. So um, that was interesting. Um, but two of them that caught my attention Number one was uh, one of the young ladies in the room said uh, they see how veterans are treated post-service, uh, not only by uh, a lot a lot of the you know a lot of the nation itself, but also through the VA system. They hear all these things, social media. Obviously, they have access to all kinds of information, um, but they feel that veterans are not necessarily treated fairly or well post-service. So why would they volunteer to be a part of that? Um, knowing that on the backside, they're not necessarily going to get what they need or, you know, they hear the the, mm -hmm. the bad side of the VA stories that obviously everybody's been aware of for the last 20 years or so. Um, Chris, and then Chris, the, the one that go, really... Go ahead. Go ahead. No, finish up the, your point. Uh, the, the last one, which was uh, mostly disheartening, is um, another young woman said that, uh, 
you know, that they see a divided nation. Um, and when there is a divided nation and the nation is not united, uh, they are less likely to raise their hand to serve a nation that is divided. Uh, so all for all of us, you know, the the adults in the room, um, the more division that that uh, we, you know, kind of abide by, contribute to, or at least don't decry, um, that the younger generation sees it and they see it as a divided nation that they're not willing to serve uh, on behalf of because um, they don't see it as worthwhile. Chris Veronis has a question, but before he asks his question, I want to follow up on what you just said on the issue of, of division. Do you agree with uh, those that suggest that uh, there is great division in the country, or are we just giving division uh, a new definition of highly partisanship? Um, I think that the division is probably not as uh, severe as people believe it to be, but I think that the edges the far left, the far right have gotten louder and they've gotten more attention and they've been given more platforms and therefore are gaining more attention. So I think the division seems a lot worse than it is. But unfortunately for a lot of people, social media is where they get their information. It's where they get their news. So the editorializing that happens in journalism is reality to most of America. And that's that's what the public believes to be true. Uh, Colonel, question, do you have a problem with the administration's um, sort of wait and see um, attitude towards this war? Um, and so, you know, I remember the earliest um, kind of spat that played out in the media was whether or not we send artillery pieces. And then it was the Patriot missiles. And then it was the M1 Abrams tanks, and now it's the F-16s. These issues seem seem to flare up at different times, and we're almost kind of brought in, um, kind of kicking and screaming reluctantly into this. My question is, why don't we just give them the assets they need to win? And if we're not going to fully commit, um, and I and and of course we're not directly involved in this role war. The you know Ukraine's our client state. Uh, but still, if we're not going to apply the spirit of the Powell Doctrine, which is apply overwhelming force, you know, to achieve your objective in the shortest amount of time, mm -hmm. aren't we responsible in some way for a forever war? Because we're dithering and indecisive and, well, you know, maybe they don't need the F-16s like uh, Biden said. So I would tell you that... Uh providing them equipment is not as easy as it seems on the surface. One, we don't have a massive surplus of equipment in our own arsenal. It doesn't exist. Um, when the president said, we'll give 31 tanks uh, to the Ukraine uh, and, and everybody thought, well, they're, they're loading those up on trains and flatbeds and they're moving them out there. And then now all of a sudden it comes out that they're not gonna get them until 2024. You know why? Because yeah. we don't have them to give away. Um, and they take a long time to manufacture um, and, and they, oh, by the way, they also take a lot to maintain. Yeah. They take a lot to, um, support, um, and, and the people that will have to do those things are Americans. So whether we say Americans are not going to get directly involved with this war, just use any of those pieces of equipment. For example, we'll stick with the tanks. Um, yeah. who's going to fix those, uh, no, where's involved. the ammunition going to come from? 
you know, those are going to have to be Americans, whether they're uniformed Americans, contracted Americans, or Americans that work for the manufacturer are going to have to be the ones who provide support to the Ukrainians once we give them the tanks. I, and also, but there also, there also has to be a, a real concern, and I, I assume it's in the military, is that if we're continuing to give in, you know, billions of dollars away in, in military armament and, and planes or whatever, uh, what does it do to, to what we have left our if we range. have to fight a war someplace yeah. else, I well, mean, it, exactly it seems right. yeah. to me. It seems to me that that every time I read that story, I'm thinking, well, God, China's got to be sitting there. You know, you know, maybe they want to move into yeah. Taiwan next. You know, next week. The, the, the colonel can tell us, but my understanding is we're not depleting our resources. They're being replenished by the manufacturers, and the the whole thing with M1 Abrams very slowly, is, slowly. Yeah, the, the timetable's got to be deadly. Uh, the only reason why we made that announcement was to give Germany, Germany cover so they could provide their tanks to Ukraine because they were um, nervous about it. But, um, Colonel, I understand the, the concerns you're outlining, but to me, I they just add up to small potatoes because we made this commitment. We made this commitment, bipartisan commitment to Ukraine. So we're in it, and uh, be, therefore, let's win it. Let, 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 let's supply them. Let's give them the ways and means. Let's give them the assets, the personnel to win the war. Because, I mean, but quite frankly, a, that, I, that is a that is a political decision, though, because here you have you have Zelensky saying we want F-16s. Yeah. And you have our president saying, well, our military doesn't think you really need those. Well, who knows I, better? General, I mean, or, or, or Colonel, uh, how do you answer that question? Now, granted, you know, people are, I mean, he's going to be, he's going to be wanting more and more and more and more. I'm talking about Zelensky, but again, uh, is he to a point where, where he may be asking for, for, for too much in return? By the way, that's the question. We do have to pause for a commercial break and then we'll be back with your answer and also any telephone calls at 1-800-723-8289 from coast to coast, border to border and around the world at beyondthebeltway.com. This is Bruce Dumont from beautiful Elk Grove Village, Illinois. Mont back. We continue with Beyond the Beltway. Two more segments and taking telephone calls at 1-800-723-8289. We'll have those in a couple of minutes, but uh, we're going to take a moment now to let each of our guests introduce themselves. And we're going to begin with our guest, uh, Clay Novak. Clay, uh, uh, let me just say retired lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army. Tell us a little bit about uh, where you were stationed in your illustrious career. And uh, tell us a little bit more about your new book called Keep Moving, Keep Fighting, Keep Shooting. Uh, thanks, Bruce. So uh, spent 25 years uh, on active duty. Um, I was an infantry officer, uh, spent a lot of time in the 82nd Airborne Division, uh, but, uh, but all over the place. Uh, heavy units, light units, um, airborne units, but uh, two tours in Iraq, three tours in Afghanistan, uh, spanning all the way back to 2002. I did my first tour 
in Afghanistan as a uh, company commander, airborne infantry company. Um, I was home from Afghanistan before the war in Iraq ever started, um, and then it continued on from there. Um, and and multiple times in rapid succession, um, you know, especially at the height of the war, uh, 2007 Iraq, 2008-9 Iraq, 2010-11 Afghanistan, 2012-13 Afghanistan. Just, uh, you know, I, I felt uh, what a lot of uh, our, our military was feeling those years, and it was on that repetitive cycle of home deployed, home deployed, home deployed. Um, the book uh, is a new novel. Uh, I wrote it as part of my uh, transition as I left the military, something to keep myself engaged, try and do something creative and do something a little bit different. Um, it's an action fiction novel. Uh, if you're a fan of the genre, uh, kind of in the Jack Reacher, Jason Bourne, Jack Ryan vein, uh, the uh, main character is, uh, is a retired infantry officer. Go figure. Uh, you're right. What you know, <laughs> uh, his name is, his name's Terry Davis. And, and in fact, you know, uh, it's not even a well-known secret, but, uh, that I never intended to publish the book. I, I wrote it for my own, uh, satisfaction, one, to see if I could do it and two, uh, just to, to do something creative. Um, so it's, uh, there's a lot of familiarity in it. Uh, but, uh, the main character, Terry Davis, again, retired army officer, uh, who's, uh, who's enjoying his quiet Midwest life, uh, with a, uh, a friend, compatriot, love interest, uh, whose name is Peggy Barron. She's a Middle East expert. Um, and, uh, she gets through her contacts in the Middle East, some, and, and through some government channels, a notification of a, of a terrorist threat to the United States. As you, um, and Terry is kind of. Go ahead, sir. As you look, as you look at your twenty-five-year career with with many deployments, is there a, a single moment that you can focus on that really was maybe a defining moment in your life, either a life or death situation, or something even beyond that? Um, I, I think for a lot of folks, um, and for me as well, it's probably the first time you get shot at. Um, you know. Combat is a thing that you train for, um, you step into it, um, but it doesn't become real uh, most of the time until that very moment. Um, and I, I can remember it very distinctly. It was uh, in Afghanistan in 2002, and uh, we, we, we took three uh, incoming rockets that landed, you know, within inside of our perimeter, within 60 meters of where I was at uh, in, in the middle of the night. Um, and that's, that is a life-changing experience for anybody who's been through it. Um, it becomes very, very real, very, very quickly uh, at that moment. I've spoken to veterans, uh, and on, on the term, thank you for your service. I've talked to some friends that like when they hear that, and I've talked with a friend or two who really doesn't like when people call attention to their service. How do you feel? Um, I, I, When people say that to me, and it happens often, yeah. um, I tell them that my my service was my pleasure. Um, it was uh, 25 years and it was a lot of wear and tear on, uh, you know, body and soul, but I wouldn't trade it. Um, and then I thank them for thanking me. Okay. Dan Johnson joins us. Uh, he is our Democratic consultant. Uh, he's been uh, quiet for the last segment, but Dan, you wanted to pop in with some uh, questions or comments. Oh, sure. No, I appreciate it. I'm just curious, um, you know, the idea that we wouldn't go all in on NATO and Ukraine um, you know, to me, it's sort of like, well, if we're not going to put it into Eastern Europe, where else would we put it? Right. I mean, any, that's a hot 
zone of threat. And if Russia is successful at, you know, taking over Ukraine, well, Poland's next. Right? There's no reason why they'd stop. So to me, I, I feel like, you know, the, the more we can defend the, sort of the, the eastern front of the rule of law and democracy, the better. And so I, I just wanted to, to hear whether, uh, related to that, the sort of emerging anti-Ukraine sentiment among, you know, the hard right or, you know, the Freedom Caucus or whoever, there are members of Congress in the Republican Party that are very loud saying that we're making a horrible mistake to arm Ukraine. And I'm curious whether, you know, that's a problem. Bruce, Chris I, has got a question, Bruce, and then I, we'll go I've, to Clay. I've known Dan for 30 years, and I, I just <laughs> want to say, Dan, welcome to the club. You know, I mean, the man, the, the dove, the dove who uh, talked about forever wars, charging a war on a credit card, the war of choice. Here he is, a war hawk. I mean, what took you so long? We, I mean, it's, freedom it's, was attacked, Chris. It, it's it, different. You, you, you know you know what's right. funny is it, it's just how politics are scrambled these days, that um, whatever position Trump takes, the Democrats take the exact opposite. Uh, you see that playing out yeah. um, with, with Ukraine, most definitely. Um, it's a lot I, of, um, there's a I'm, lot of avoiding I'm, a question. I I'm I, I give uh, Joe Biden a B B minus on uh, on handling the the war. We should support Ukraine 100 percent, and um, we benefit. I mean, you talk about. And the colonel's talking about like uh, we need to be careful about draining our own resources. Look at Russia. I mean, the casualties. I mean, and maybe the colonel can confirm this, but it's like uh, after a year, a hundred thousand to two hundred thousand casualties. We really don't know. I mean, the, the deaths I've I've heard are could, could be about sixty thousand. One of the reasons, by the way, that the war in Afghanistan, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, wound down after ten years was because of the uh, casualty rate. Um, that was about 10,000. And that what that did is that mobilized Russian mothers uh, to end the How war. Do we, and now, now you've got potentially 60,000 dead Russians. Colonel, how do we know or how can we rely on any information we are hearing from, from Russia concerning uh, you know, popular support for the, uh, for the war effort? Oh, that's, I mean, that's very, very tough to confirm. Um, you know, they're, it's not even media over there. It's, it's straight propaganda, you know, yeah. government controlled. So I, I, I don't know outside of our intelligence structure, um, you know, doing what they do as a matter of course, uh, collecting through various, you know, you know, various, uh, veins of information. I, I don't know if we can confirm anything that comes out of Russia to be true or false. I think your best bet, honestly, would be to gather information from the Ukrainians on what they're seeing, what they know, um, and what they're hearing as far as casualty numbers go. That would be probably more reliable or almost as reliable as what we get out of Russia. We have a telephone call. Terry is listening to us in northern Indiana. Go ahead, Terry. Uh, thank you. Uh, first, I just wanted to say I had to disagree with the earlier guest. There's a lot to see in Bahrain if you're stuck in Jabal. And okay. that's the only place you can go. Okay. But um, I was just curious among your guests, uh, if anyone thought the war would be over by the end of this year, 
uh, who thought this war might go on for four, five, or more years? Let's let the colonel comment on that. Colonel? Um, you know, I, I think Putin's pretty stubborn. Um, I, I don't think that, uh, I don't think it'll be over by the end of this year. Um, I don't know, four or five years is probably the length, uh, but I, I don't see it ending by the end of this year. Four or five years, is that too long? Um, I think four or five years is too long. I think um, resource-wise, I don't think that uh, the Russians could maintain that for four or five years, nor would they want to. I think the economic drain for them uh, on personnel, equipment, and, and truthfully, the restricted trade um, would be too much. I think four or five years is way too long. Will the political pressure, Chris Veronis, be more likely to come from within the Republican primary and its uh, and its process as opposed to the Democratic process, which will really sort of rally around the president? Yeah, the, the Republicans definitely, um, um, th there's a divided message there. Um, uh, Biden could take advantage of that. But um, going into an election year, we don't know what's going to happen. There's two, two, two Do we know, but Don't we know what Donald Trump is going to say? Don't yeah. we know that yeah, Donald do. Trump is more likely to take the, the Tucker Carlson approach? Yes. That's exactly it. Is that is that a winning approach within the Republican primary against I, for, the globalists? For, for this Republican Party, which is a, a Donald Trump Republican Party, yes, it is. So the threat to freedom is from Donald Trump rallying Americans to say, let's abandon Ukraine. Is that what we're saying? But, but, but Dan, I mean, play out what you're saying. I mean, I'm like, like the threat to freedom. I mean, does that include Taiwan? Yeah. I like when did you become an internationalist? Look, I, I want there, to know. Look, Chris, there's a difference between invading uh, another country because uh, Saudi Arabians attacked us on 9-11 and saying there's a threat to democracy from the authoritarian countries. Have you changed your opinion on Kuwait then uh, with, the, with the first Gulf War? I, was, I think that was always the right thing to do. Okay, we'll be back shortly. I'm Bruce Dubon. Don't go away. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, you know, we're just sort of glossing over. back for our final segment uh, this evening on Beyond the Beltway. One issue that is swirling around Washington, D.C., and uh, it has some uh, bipartisan support, and that is a uh, desire by the part of many uh, to outlaw TikTok. TikTok has been uh, uh, basically banned from many U.S. government-related uh, uh, devices, but again, uh, a lot of Democrats and a lot of Republicans want to expand that uh colonel what do you th what do you think of the uh, banning tiktok is it past the point of no return when we can do that successfully um i don't think it's past the point of no return um i i would be very interested i know there's tons and tons of speculation on what it's being used for um and, but how does it differ from any of the other apps that are being used nowadays as far as collecting information 
et cetera. We all, we all know that, you know, you can have a conversation in your house with your family about a specific product and 20 minutes later on every one of your social media feeds, there's going to be advertisements for that. that yeah, product. but this information is going back to the Chinese Communist Party, allegedly. But but really, Bruce, I mean, are they, they collecting on 16-year-old high school juniors? I mean, you know, there's some information they're getting out of it, I'm sure. But, you know, the full banning of TikTok, I, I don't necessarily disagree with banning it for government use. That's probably not a bad thing, but... Getting rid of it completely, I, I don't know if there's uh, as much utility in that as we believe. Chris, what do you think? Uh, generally. Um, Are you on TikTok? No. No. Go ahead. Um, I uh, uh, th There is a threat there. Um, I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm inclined to believe what the, the military industrial complex, um, I don't think they there's a unified opinion, to, to be honest, uh, about TikTok. But, you know, you could say there's a threat coming from um, Beijing, there, there's a threat coming from Silicon Valley. I mean, just, just this week, there was a meta-analysis done on several studies that, that just made it painfully clear that um, the, the t teenagers are suffering because of social media, particularly teenage girls. And this has stoked um, new um, chatter about bans on all um, social media, like age limits, like the same thing with like cigarettes. Mm -hmm. I don't think it'll go there, but I mean, this is a kind of brave new world that we've got to look at, and national security is just one piece of it. Dan, uh, TikTok, are you I'm, on it? I, I'm not on it. You can apparently, uh, I learned this today because there's a congressman who's on it, but you can see the TikToks from YouTube. So you don't have to be, you don't have to download the yeah. app to see them. Right. And then after a couple, they're like, okay, now download it so Beijing can see what you're up to. Um, so is is it political for the Democrats who... Some people are starting to this? pop out. It's good. I think it started up more of an R thing, but I think some, right. some Ds are on board with that. And I think right. the people that tend to think the most about China as a threat are the ones that are fastest to say... We ought not let this be all over our country. What is the political downside, if indeed you think there's a political downside, or maybe it's an upside, Yeah, to be the leader, to, to be an, a political leader that is saying to young America, yeah. we're going to take something away from you that you really like, and we're going to do it because it's good for you, even though you may not be aware of why it's bad for you. I think there will be a um, a real blowback among young people that um, they like it. They don't look. A lot of will people, they retaliate in any way? It's hard to like if it would ever pass to be in a bipartisan way. Mm -hmm. um, so it's hard to say like they're going to swing left or they're going to swing right. Um, but it will likely, uh, you know, inflame millions of young people that really like the app and maybe they'll you know register to vote and learn more about government and that's a good thing uh, i think in a month they'll have forgotten about what do you think the uh, in a month they will have forgotten yeah, about it. i disagree with that yeah. colonel what do you think of the, the 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 political reaction if tiktok were to be banned would that be viewed as a profile encouraged by our political leadership or would it uh, uh just be something that uh, those that oppose it would just uh say that those who are in for it are Neanderthals and uh, looking for a, you know, a, a communist under every bed. 
<laughs> I, I think it's like any other political issue. It's going to be manipulated to benefit whoever is opposed or for it. They're, they're, mm-hmm. They'll politicize it um, and, and they'll use it to, to their own advantage, whether it's to play to a younger, you know, future voting audience um, or they'll play to, you know, a, a you know, a group of parents that they think want to protect their children. Um, so I, I think the blowback will be on both sides, but I think benefit will be on both sides because they're both going to spin it however they feel is uh, going to benefit them the most. Do you do you know exactly what information they are gleaning? If if they're if they're watching the activities of, let's say, you know, sixteen to eighteen year old uh, teenagers, uh, what sort of information are they gleaning? They're gleaning obviously uh, what type of of, of uh, content that they like. But what, from a national security perspective, are they really uh, relinquishing? Do you know? Does anybody know or speculate on it? I don't know exactly what they're collecting, but I think the more important thing is, is what are they going to do with that information? Um, You know, information is one thing. Intelligence is something else. But how you apply that information is probably the thing that we need to be most worried about. Um, it, It. you know, what they collect on is only one piece of the puzzle, but what they do with that information is probably the, the place where we need to focus most. Is it more? Are you I don't more know what con- it is. I don't know what they're pulling. Are you more concerned? How, what's your answer to that, Chris? What do they, what do they, what do they learn? Well, look, they every- may, they may learn what you like. So they're going to feed you information. So there could be, they could determine what your what the content is. I'll but, take it. But every, I mean, yeah. Facebook could do that. I'll right? take it. Look, it's it's the same thing that you know the rubles that went through the NRA to say we're you know come out to these Black Lives Matter protests and bring your guns because they're burning down every city. It's in their national security interest from China's perspective to create more yeah. civil war and to pump out disinformation. Okay, on that note. Uh, pessimistic note we thank dan johnson for joining us this evening and also chris veronis we thank you very much for joining us as well and also lieutenant colonel clay novak and the title of that new book is one more time keep moving keep shooting keep moving keep shooting available on amazon and all other devices i'm bruce dumont thanks fritz coleman for the show i'm bruce dumont so long good night from chicago (laughs) 